All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Behind the Human. I'm your host, Mark Champagne, and it's my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game personally and professionally. Today, we've got a second or return guest, I should say, Stephen Kotler, one of the world's foremost experts on human peak performance and author of 10 bestsellers out of 14 books. That's not too bad, including The Art of the Impossible, The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, such a good book, and Bold in Abundance, to name but a few. He's back with The Devil's Dictionary, an action-packed cyberpunk novel that will also appeal to fans of climate fiction as it provides a serious approach to addressing the myriad complex issues surrounding climate change. And for any new listeners of the show, make sure to catch our first episode talking about the art of the impossible. That's episode 154. I'm proud to say out of almost 300 episodes now over the last four years, that's one of the top 10 listened to shows uh, or episodes on the show. So you won't be disappointed. Stephen, welcome, brother. Thank you for having me back. I can't wait. I mean, we were we we were jamming a little bit before I hit record, and and what I wanted I wanted what I wanted to say for the interview was, I remember picking up the book because I didn't read your other nonfictions. This is the first uh, my first entry point into your your novels, and at first I was thinking, how the hell does all this stuff link back to the Stephen Kotler I know when it comes to flow research and. Well, the writing about the future, obviously, there's a, there's a bit of a link there. But then, as I got into the book, it just it was like things kept firing. I'm like, oh shit, this is it. This is all linked. So I, you know, I really I can't wait to explore that because I feel like there's not a lot of people out there that have this kind of broad writing capability that you know inter interlinks in a way. But from the outside, when you look at it, it looks like very separate you know, categories, for example. I will tell you that <laughs> I didn't do this, and, and I don't mean this in a, in a braggardly way, uh, but I did find it interesting. Um, I have some very uh, rambunctious people who work for me, and uh, one of the things, you know, they a bunch of years ago, they wanted to know how many published words I had versus how many words I'd thrown away and, you know, didn't went into the trash pile. So like they, that calculation is <laughs> okay. this, this most recent time. Um, they were, uh, they wanted to figure out if there was any other author in recent memory who has had, you know, as many bestsellers in as many categories and also written, you know, all that stuff. And um, they, they couldn't find a comparable. I'm sure there are lots of comparables, but my sure. favorite hunting and couldn't find an easy comparable, which I think tells you that I'm in a schizophrenic cat class by myself. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, welcome to the class. Thank I you. love it. I mean, before we get into uh, the latest book and, and your work in general, uh, everyone gets the same question to open the show. And it's, we, we just covered a lot of titles and, and whatnot. And this is just to, to tap into, you know, who you are. So as you sit here today, you know, like, how do you define yourself? Like, what's what are some of those characteristics that stand out for you as just a human being? How do I define myself as a human being? Yeah, who are you? It's just the classic who are you question. Crazy, strange question. Um, I'm going to give you a really weird answer. Go for it. So... 
when you look at human biology, right, whatever it is, when you look at human beings, you, you basically you see like a bunch of spectrums, right? Like introversion to extroversion or like flow proneness to not like all that stuff. And I, what I sort of think, and they change over time, obviously they change with experience and they change like whatever. So you're, there's probably, I don't know, let's say there's a hundred different like spectrums that qualify as human. And we're all at like certain points on the, and I think if you combine those hundred dots, you get like who you are actually at any one point. So I really think that who any of us are is just like an overlay of about a hundred to 200 patterns at once that coalesces into really what you can call a perspective. And okay. I'm not sure, I'm not a hundred percent certain we're much beyond that. I don't like that. That's a really odd and this doesn't mean like we're not wonderful and loving and empathetic, yeah, yeah. you know, innovative and all that stuff. But from a, like a human biology perspective, that has been my sneaking suspicion. And by the way, there's a bunch of like different quasi Gurdjieff thought that way as well. Different physicists have sort of talked about this. There's evolutionary ideas. This isn't exactly my idea. Um, there's a bunch of people who have sort of thought this way. Um, but I, I, I know that's sort of a, a, a cool answer maybe, but a lame ass one to what you're asking for. But <laughs> Definitely I, no one's answered it in that way, but <laughs> I don't know what else to say there. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm going to roll with that one. Cause that, I mean, I, I, I should, I should have expected that. I mean, uh, I asked you the same question in the, in the, the first time we had the interview and I remember your, your reaction. It's like, what the hell kind of question is that to start the show? <laughs> that is my reaction this time. Dude. Yeah. Like but it's <laughs> I, I I hold the guest to it because you, you know what Stephen when I don't ask the question often I get I'm an author I'm a writer I'm this I'm that we we cover that off in the bo- in the bio what I'm interested in you know is what are the characteristics like are you just a naturally curious human being are you this are you that like what what is it about you that makes yeah, you I, you I, I will say if you're looking for a short pithy answer to that question along those lines. I would say if I was, try- I'm a guy who can follow an idea right off the edge of the world. That's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's very cool. often how I think of myself is okay. um, good or bad, right? That like, sometimes that's great. Sometimes that's not so good. Um, yeah. But, um, that's often a little bit about. I like that. Well, so let's, let's stick with that because I'd love to, to plug that into just the, you know, going back to when you first wrote your your first novel or nonfiction, like how I'm just curious having, I've only written one book, obviously. So there's a caveat here, but just even in this stage, I can't imagine going into fiction. It's just a completely different realm. Then you have to know, because this will make it, so I am trained as an undergrad, an undergrad. um, I have an English major and a creative writing major and my creative writing specialty was poetry. So I started okay. as a poet in sure. when I, in my senior thesis in college was a quote unquote epic poem that by the time I was done with like 110 pages, I was like, this may not be an epic poem, but it's probably a novel. And okay. I became a fiction writer and I went to graduate school in fiction and I spent 11 years writing my first book, which is a novel. Um, and, uh, and then the next five years writing two more novels that are actually in drawers and not published, um, oh, along the way, as I was trying to figure like, you don't make a living as a novelist at all, obviously not in the beginning. Um, so how do, how do I pay for my adventures? And, um, I'm an old school punk rocker. 
So like, yeah, I couldn't get, I had long dreadlocks, I had earrings. I, you know, <laughs> back, back in the day, you, I couldn't, nobody would hire me, right? Um, it didn't matter how talented I was or not talented. I couldn't get a job in corporate America. Um, magazines, especially in the nineties, are sort of a punk rock takeover of magazines yeah. and they took me. So I became a, a journalist um, in the early 1990s, right out of graduate school. That was like, like I worked in advertising right out of graduate school. Yeah. And then uh, they fired me for having dreadlocks and I went immediately into journalism. Um, okay. Is this uh, when you started falling around essentially whether it was surfers and uh, skiers? Like it was yeah, extreme was, sports, it, right? In the early days, I had two fascinations predominantly. The first was extreme sports, as you pointed out. And the second one, which was sort of related to, in my mind, very much so because of stuff I had been reading, peak performance. So I was obsessed with what was then called behavioral neuroscience, which is a brand new field. So if you go back to the 1990s, a bunch of stuff we take yeah. for granted today, consciousness research, the fact that humans have emotions, and these are a serious topic of scientific study, right? Uh, creativity and innovation, uh, even entrepreneurship on a certain level, all of those topics uh, were a lot more complicated back yeah. then. Even writing about like spirituality um, was complicated. Behavioral neuroscience, which is the like, how do we work as people, right? Like mechanistically, yeah. like how, how does shit work was a new field. And I very quickly discovered, I was always interested in science. So I started covering science and action sports sort of at the same time. And I covered really anything in science because I was interested in all of it, but I kept gravitating to two things, stories about animals and mm. stories about neurobiology. And so like, obviously animals and the environment became one giant passion. Yeah. The neurobiology of human behavior and peak human performance became another one. And, um, you know, action sports fed into, well, it sort of fed into both because if you go into the place, like if you go into the middle of nowhere where the animals are, if you want to go hang out in Africa with lemurs or what stuff I did, um, when you get to the middle of freaking nowhere, the only people who are there are the scientists and the athletes, right? When I was in Madagascar, it was all primatologists and research biologists and a rainforest ecologist. And then like this troop from National Geographic of climbers led by Lynn Hill and a bunch of other people who had found a wall as big as El Cap or Half Dome, don't quote me on this, in Madagascar at a, at a place called Andrinkatra, where I will tell you, I believe I uh, they were the first group of outsiders ever in down drink and and I was the second, um, mm, which was really like, uh, which was really, you know, interesting being in a place where like nobody had ever seen anybody who wasn't Malagash. Yeah. Yeah. So then let's jump into, I just, I would love to know the, the different flow or vibe that you're in writing these different styles of books or are they different? Like, do you, do you tap into like, is are there different practices that you're using or, uh, I guess a mental state to write these no, different types uh, of books? No, uh, no. Um, which is not to say I'm not in a different mental state during the book. Like, sure. So, um, I'll give you example, a couple quick examples. We don't have to belabor this one. Um, or I don't. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> no, no, I mean, so like. As a general rule, nonfiction is slightly easier but less fun than fiction. Fiction is sure. way more fun to write. You laugh more. 
It's really fun, but it is technically so much harder to yeah. keep under control than nonfiction um, that when you encounter problems in fiction, they can take a lot longer to solve and be a yeah. lot more complicated to solve than problems in nonfiction. Um, yeah. For example, if you run into a problem on, you know, uh, at the end of the book that you sort of, a novel that you sort of need to solve, you could have to literally go backwards and change something in almost every chapter, right? Mm. If you get right. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in sure. a nonfiction book, you just have to change the thing and the thing you're writing. Very rarely do you bump into something where you're like, oh, fuck, I got to change everything. But that's yeah. not uncommon with certain novel errors and things like that, where like you're like, oh, the character's just not working here and needs more backbone. And you're like, oh, shit, more backbone's got to start 300 pages ago, right? <laughs> yeah, like, whatever. Yeah. But like that stuff, you can't just like whip on page up to page 289 and then like Superman afterwards, like doesn't really work for readers. So like yeah. stuff like that. I, and it, it, it differs, but like my routine has never changed. I wake up at four o'clock in the morning and I start writing. Yeah. Um, I, I will tell you that um, as a rule, I can usually get through a fiction section slightly faster than a nonfiction section unless I get stuck. Um, but like that hasn't changed. I still work with my own editor twice a week, two afternoons a week and, you know, do a couple other writing sessions a week usually. And that's been my schedule for since I was at least 38, 39, 40, okay. um, pretty regularly and probably really my schedule. I started the 4am wake up time is, but 2007 is when that started the like six or 5 a.m wake up time started in like 99 98 um, okay right? so like those are that's the only, been early yeah major differences i've had the same editor for 25 years um wow yeah so and i you know as far as readers go I work with, you know, they always change a little bit depending on like what book, but like I've essentially the same group of people have been reading my stuff on and off for the same period of time, you know, not it's, that's pretty consistent for me. Okay. Fascinating. I just, you know, again, I mean, I'm only one book in, but I, I did notice after completing my nonfiction that then when I picked up a, a novel, I had this whole other appreciation for the writing. Like it's almost like the detail started to really pop off the page. And I started thinking, how the hell do they think like this? Like, I'm, you know, you, you don't yeah, notice it. it it's right? And I, I, so it's funny. I just read, finished it yesterday, actually. So a very good friend of mine who is an absolute genius, like people in the world call this dude a genius. He has invented a very important technology. He okay. has written a lot of books. He is an academic. In fact, he's an award-winning academic and communicator. And he sent me his first novel because it was a book about the future. And we were talking about things about the future. And he was like, oh, I, you know, I wrote about this and I, and I thought he had written a nonfiction book. And he said, no, no, I've written a novel. Let me send it to you. And um, while the core idea is good, and there are bits and pieces that are really solid, like it's a fucking mess. And, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I love the dude and he's a genius and I'm sure we'll fix it. We, like we had long, but I was telling him about it and I was he's like, I have been trying to write this thing for 20 years and I will tell you, 
it's a totally different, like novels are a totally different ball game. I do not know how you do it. And to your point, they're an ass kicking. You know what I mean? I've got yeah. nonfiction books out that I'm not exactly thrilled with and that like, I wish the writing was a little bit better or whatever, but I don't have any sitting in drawers that I spent <laughs> yeah, years writing. Point. You know what I mean? I got two <laughs> novels that are done, done, that are in drawers. And I don't think anybody's ever going to see, right? Like each one yeah. represents two to three years worth of work and forget about it. It's, yeah. it's just, I mean, I think some people take to it and it works for them right out of the gate. Uh, my wife's first novel, you know, she sort of like spewed it out over the course of like seven months, never written before whatsoever. And it became, it's a, you know, it's a giant, it's a classic, um, okay. especially in young adult literature, uh, which is where it's now sort of lives, even though I don't think it's that kind of book, but it's a classic. And it was her first, you know what I mean? Her first shot of the game. I will also say that in my opinion, the worst thing that could ever happen to a writer, and specifically a novelist, and I know a bunch of people who this happened to, including my wife, is that experience. Is if your first book is super easy for you, mm, yeah, sets the bar. Take a couple deep breaths before you go into your second book because it's like you may get lucky, it may happen, but you know, I train a lot of writers in flow for writers. You know what I mean? And I have for a yeah. lot of years, um, and. Uh, I, a lot of my, a lot of people come through there, use the class to write their first book. I can't tell you how many of today's thought leaders, you know, like we joke that like 10% of all the thought leadership books that came are out, you know, every year are people we train and it's probably not that far off. I mean, it's far off, but it's not that far off for big books that people know. And, um, they're all now getting into their second books. And I get emails like, why didn't you tell us this? And I was like, I did actually, but like, warned you. Yeah. You got the email? <laughs> what did I tell you? What, uh, we touched a little bit about this in the last episode, but I mean, I think it's super important and relevant for not just writers, but anyone, you know, trying to do really good work in this world. And you shared some of, I guess you can say your flow state inducing practices or activities and whatnot that I imagine uh, you had is while well, you're saying your routine is, is pretty much the same for all books. So I just I'd love to talk a little bit about what you are doing, you know, in those those writing times to just keep your mind in a creative state. I actually tried some of like I threw in a lot of snowboarding this uh, season while I was writing while I was writing my book. And I was thinking about you every time because like, what's that stat? It's, it's something like uh you, you, that creative, uh, that creative, or experiencing that, that the creativity that comes from a flow state can be seen up to three days or something yeah, like that. Two days. That's true. Two uh, days. Uh, I mean, Abla's work. I always slaughter her last name. She's at Harvard. She's brilliant. And I slaughter her last name every last time. A mobile. I still can't do it. Okay. Anyways, she's brilliant. Um, and yeah, she found that the heightened creativity that shows up in flow outlasts a flow state by a day, maybe two. Um, uh, so I, I am not fancy, but I'm very precise. So uh, mm. let's, do you want me to put this in flow terms? Yeah, go for it. Whatever, whatever feels right. Oh, well, the, the, for anybody who didn't listen the first time, you don't know what flow is. It's an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. More specifically, it refers to those moments of rapt attention, total absorption. Get so focused on the task at hand that uh, everything else just disappears and all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, tend to go through the roof. I 
when I'm not writing books, I'm the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. We're the, I think we're the global leader in uh, peak performance research and training at this point. Um, on the research side, we're partnered with everybody from USC, Stanford, Bureau College, London, Deloitte, Formula One, on and on and on. And we study the neurobiology peak human performance. So what's going on in the brain and body when we're at our best. And then we use this science to train people. And um, we've trained, um, I think, between our, our teachings and our trainings, we've trained over half a million people. We work in 130 countries. And uh, this is what we do. So uh, one of the things we train people in is the fact that flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. You want more flow in your life? There are triggers, right? What uh, Mark was just talking about is something called your primary flow experience. It's not a flow trigger. This is just the idea that we all have something that usually we've done our whole life that pretty much drops us into the zone, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80% of the time. It's a primary flow activity. For me, it's skiing. For Mark, it sounds like it's snowboarding. Um, for my wife, it's walking the dogs in the backcountry. For, you know, it's, it could be gardening, it could be coding, it could be dancing to hip hop, it could be dancing. So it doesn't matter. Everybody's got their thing, maybe a couple of them. But like one of the things we train people to do in is don't neglect your primary flow activity. The more flow you get, the more flow you get. The heightened creativity outlasts the flow state, the heightened productivity outlasts the flow state. It's a focusing skill, which is why the more flow you get, the more flow you get. So if you're focusing on the ski hill helps you focus better at, at work too and dropping mm-hmm. flow that way. Um, and there's also a bunch of, when we move into flow, it calms the nervous system down, flushes stress hormones from our system, and it actually boosts the immune system. So there's those benefits as well, plus a bunch of others. But what we find is that people, as they get older, right? They let go of childish things. They get responsible and they stop their their primary flow activity and it's a disaster. And in fact, um, it's funny, not funny, haha, but funny, you know, um, during (laughs) COVID there's overwhelming proof. Adam Grant did a TED talk about this. There's four different studies. They all came out of China that looked at languishing during COVID. So who suffered the worst, who did the best? And again and again and again, it was the same finding. The people with the most flow in their lives during COVID did the best during COVID and are flourishing the most now. The least mm-hmm. amount of flow produced the most languishing, um, which is a, a psychological term. Um, and so all of, and I, all the people I know who did well during COVID doubled down on their primary flow activity, right? And really progressed it. So I, you asked what I do. Obviously, I double down on my primary flow activity, right? And uh, do everything I can to be skiing. When it's not ski, my ski season starts early and goes very late. So it's only like I will stop skiing in about a week. And unless I go up to Mount Hood over the summer, which I may or may not do in July, depending on how fires are where I live, yeah. um, uh, it'll start again in November. So like my off season is pretty, you know, sometimes I ride mountain bikes, sometimes I do other stuff, but it's it, mostly I train for skiing. Um, also, what do I do every day? Um, I complete concentration of flow trigger. And um, I... The, what the research shows is that you need like 90 to 120 minute blocks of uninterrupted concentration for flow. And if you're interested in really deep creative flow states, you should have longer blocks, not every day, but at least a couple times a week. Um, and so I, that's why I start my day, right? And I practice distraction management ahead of time. Key tip, 
right? We're not going to beat our devices. These things are built, they're yeah. designed, right? So you got to divorce your phone. You got to turn off email. You got to turn off instant messages. You got to shut. Like I write the night before I turn everything off in my office, but Microsoft Word and I put it in focus view. It's four o'clock in the morning. I don't even turn my lights on. So when I walk into my office, like all I see is floating words on a black page, nothing else. Like yes. that's what I- Setting up the night before for the yeah. morning. I love it. Do it the night before for the morning. And um, then sort of the most important flow trigger is a challenge skills balance, right? It says that uh, we pay the most attention to the present and get the most flow out of that when the challenge of the task at hand slightly exceeds our skill set. So flow follows focus, right? It only shows up when all our attention is in the right here, right now. That's what the triggers do. And when the challenge is slightly more than our skills, we want to stretch but not snap, that drives the most flow. We could talk endlessly about what that means, but as a writer to me, it means yeah. when I'm starting a book, 500 words a day. In the middle of a book, 750 words a day. At the end of a book, 1,000 words a day when I know what I'm doing and where I'm going. Hello, everyone. I first wanted to say thanks for being here, and I hope you're enjoying the show. I wanted to let you know if you're interested, I just launched the Better Questions newsletter designed to provide you with a consistent 15-minute opportunity to pause and think because a pause leads to clarity and operating with intention where we all win and thrive. The newsletter is short, simple, and practical, providing you with three quality reflective prompts and mental fitness twice a month. But as always, I'll adjust the frequency based on your feedback. Never forget, at any point, you are always one question away from a completely different life or outcome. You can sign up over at BehindTheHuman.com, which will also give you a free preview of my debut book, Personal Socrates. BehindTheHuman.com. Now back to the show. Now, flow science also says create clear goals. So I like a daily to-do list ahead of time also. And the first thing is always write 500 words. Clear goals, emphasis on clarity, much more than goals, right? The, it's about focus. Clear goals tell us where to put up our attention now and where it goes next. Um, and you don't have to want, wonder or wander. It also lowers cognitive load because it exports all that crap out of your head. Sure. It's more energy for attention, and that's how that trigger works. So I try to write my clear goal list for the next day, the night before as well. The first task is my hardest task and the most rewarding task. It's always, you know, write my book. And it's, you know, depending and, and just to put 500 words in context so people understand, this is going to be totally individual. But for me, after roughly 350 words in both fiction and nonfiction, as a general rule, you have to transition from one idea to the next. And, and you know, as a writer, Mark, nothing is harder than transitioning between ideas. That's like, you never get stuck in the ideas. You get stuck yeah. trying to link them together, right? It kicks your ass. So 350 words, I write, you know, that's an hour, hour and a half house worth of work. No problem. I'm having fun pretty much and I'm, and I'm getting the work done. But around 350 to 400, I got to make that transition. And it's going to be hard. So 500 words, 550 if the transition goes smoothly. You know what I mean? And I'm like, oh, I got a little extra time, right? I move it around a little if I'm exhausted, hungover, got in a fight with somebody the night before, you know, whatever, whatever, I'm yeah. distressed. Um, maybe I'll shrink it. So I, it's a living target to me based on how I'm feeling. But I try to stick to that. And um one of the things I want to speak to, and then I'll, then we can go someplace else, but like, yeah, 
asked what I do and what really matters. And so I've got a new book coming out next winter on peak performance aging and where I talk about oh. this idea. Uh, and maybe I talked about it a little bit in Art Impossible, but like when I make a to-do list, it's not optional to me. Like once I call something a goal and say it out loud or write it down, I will die before I don't do it. Like, mm-hmm. I, and I, so like, in my mind, I work for the boss. The boss is the version of myself who has my <laughs> long-term future in mind, yeah. right? Because in the moment, I'm like everybody else. I want the easy way out. I want the quick high. I want all of it, right? And so like my ironclad rule is like, I work for the boss. And, you know, rule one is always follow the rules. And, you know, so if I say, call it a goal, if I say it aloud, it always gets done. And if you live by that code, if you never speak anything as a goal that you don't complete, you develop a really robust confidence and trust with yourself that is you can't get. If you always break your word to yourself, you're hurting not just how other people sort of view you because it drives other people crazy. You know what I mean? On that Mm -hmm. side, keep your word. But it really hurts peak performance at at an internal level. You know, they talk about this uh, today in psychology under the heading authenticity. That's sort of where it lives today. Um, though it was Carl Rogers, the early humanist psychologist who first, like he was the, he's the godfather of authenticity and, you know, that, but it like, there's more and more and more research that says like, you can't even perform, forget about it, your best, like average, if you're yeah. not really authentic with yourself and there's now authenticity rating scales and all, it's a neat concept. Um, but I think this falls under that heading. Um, but so I'll just stop there because it's there's not yeah th- it's not fancy it's just I just it's precise I think you said it well it's precise and and there's that accountability and I mean I you know I definitely I wanted to pivot into your latest book and I think it's a good transition because without you know those systems in place you know wouldn't be holding this new book right essentially so I mean let, let's just let's just j- jump into it I mean I pulled a couple quotes here that I think one that I really like that I'm like, oh, this is the kind of book that we've got here. And it's, it, it's this, it's, it's right from the very beginning of the book, page 16. And it's the taxi belongs to one of those holdout London cabbies, an actual human driving an actual car. So it just, you know, to me, it set the stage for like what we're into, what we're about to jump into. And then, then the rest of the book just keeps flowing. And I love, I learned new terms here because this seems like it's a near future right book because there's stuff in here that's like i have a feeling that's probably just about to be launched and having read uh, uh what's the other one you one one you did with peter diamandas the uh master, the yeah master. i remember i'm like holy shit i feel like this book is informing this novel type okay, thing so right you know, let's actually start there because this is funny yeah you don't know this um Devil's Dictionary, Last Hango in Cyberspace, and Devil's Dictionary are companion books, right? You don't have yeah. to read one to read the other, but they're same main characters. Um, yeah. And I have not read the first one. And just for, for listeners, totally able to follow the current book. Yeah, there's no, I really, I actually, um, I wrote the current, I, I think there's, I like my first book. I like Last Hango a lot, but it's a little more sort of 
subcultural. I didn't intend it that way, but okay. like in the end, in the writing, like it's got a lot more counterculture in there than I originally intended because I just bled into my own writing. Um, whereas in Devils, I I knew that, so I was like, no, 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 I want this to go as wide as possible. So like in Devil, the difference I think is like if you have a punk rock weird childhood, you laugh your ass off and last tango. And if you're not that person, you laugh a little bit not a ton. In Devil's Dictionary, everybody laughs. Yeah, right? that's, yeah, that's, totally. That's um, so, um, but I was writing future. I, so Peter came to me, and we had the initial two, three months worth of research for the future is faster than you think, which looks at fourteen different lines of exponentially accelerating technology. So fourteen different disruptive technologies that are blowing up in the world today. And points where where they converge, right? Where one's it's no longer just AI. Now it's AI meets robotics meets yeah. virtual reality, right? So they're all coming together. And I always say when it comes, I've written a lot on disruptive technology, both as a journalist and as a nonfiction writer. But I always say I am a reporter, not a futurist, right? There's a okay. difference. And yeah. um, I try to report on what's now. And if I'm going to talk about where it's going. I usually only sort of point out questions and issues because I don't prognosticate. In Faster, as you know, because you've read it, we did those sections where we were like, okay, 10 years from now, you're making dinner and, right? And to do those sections where I had to be a futurist, right? Um, I couldn't wrap my goddamn head around it. Like I couldn't like 10 years into the future when all these things come together, I was like, well, but if, and so I created a world, rolled everything forward 10 to 15 years, created a world and put two novels in that world. So I could figure out how to write the future oh. sections in faster. So that's fast, so cool. Last Tango was actually written while I was doing the research for Faster, as part of my research, we held it because Faster came out first, um, and I um, sold it and you know edited and did a bunch of stuff to get to Last Tango. So it changed a little bit, but that was literally how these books, how this universe sort of emerged. It was me trying to wrap my head around a nonfiction book about the future and not wanting to get it wrong and being me. Like, yeah, I'll write a novel to get it right. Like, I'm just me. You know what yeah, I mean? That like, seems I like a bit torturous, but good for you. <laughs> I like to be right if I can. It's important to me. I did. That is so cool. I mean, it makes me, I, I'm about halfway through the book. So I'm, I don't know, it just provides another yeah, dude, perspective so, or spin to it. I think the other stuff that like, you know, at a big mat, I, you know, I have covered animal rights and environmental issues from the beginning. So the other, like the other two big themes that are sort of in the book beyond what we just talked about are the other two, like I, you know, on the environmental front, what is, what are these books? Like I just, I'm a big believer um, that you have to be able to imagine the future if you want to create it. Like if you can't think it up, yeah. it will never come into existence. And I wanted to imagine a future where all this technology was going forward and we we're using it to solve global environmental problems because those yeah. that so i don't know if you know this but when peter and i divide up our books if a technology is being it helps humans chances are peter did the research if a technology is designed to help the environment animals plants uh 
that sort of thing, chances are I did the research. That's often how, you know, if it's neuroscience, psychology, um, and sort of environmental tech, it's me. If it's help humans, it's Peter. And, you know, we tend to meet in the middle on education because it doubles over with flow research and stuff like that in a couple okay. other places. But, like, that's really the division of labor. So, so, so you're not a fan of humans, Steve? Is that what not that I'm a fan of humans. <laughs> just kidding. But, like, there are lots of people trying to help humans yeah. and less people trying to help plants and animals. I'm from fucking Cleveland. We root for the underdog. <laughs> Nobody, I'm a Browns fan. Nobody's a bigger underdog than plants, animals, and ecosystems, right? Like, come on. You fight for the underdog. It's what you do. From Cleveland, as I, I love it. All right. So uh, that said, I wanted to create a book where the biggest ecological challenges we currently face, climate change and species die off, had been solved. And I mm. didn't want a utopia, right? I wanted a book where like both the, all the technologies we needed, but also much more important to me is we need a matic, massive shift in, in how we are as people, psychologically, emotionally, empathetically. Yeah, the empathy. Yeah. Right to get to this future. And the, the book, the theme of the book is empathy for all, right? Empathy for plants, animals, ecosystems, and all humans. And so I want to know what are the changes that have to take place in society to get to this future, right? And that's sort of what both books are about. Now, as you probably know, these are sci-fi thrillers that are, you know, page turners and readers. You know, I keep getting emails that say things like, you fucker, I stood up three nights straight and can't work, right? Like, brilliant. Yeah. That's, the, that's exactly what I want. I want, like, I want my reader, if you're going to give me seven hours of your life to read a book, you better have a blast. You better, I mean, I, I want to blow your mind, but you better have a massive amount of fun because yeah. every time is valuable. And I really sort of, I'm grateful that you've given me that time. So I want to give you a great ride. So um, that's all the big picture stuff. And where it ties to flow because you asked the last piece in the puzzle. So if you want sort of empathy for all, right, that's wildly expanded sense of empathy. And that is also uh, what uh, psychologists call, depending on when you ask the psychologists in the 80s, 90s, and thousands, it was ecological awareness. Today, it's become nature relatedness. This is basically how much you see, perceive, and care about the natural world. And yeah. Everybody's different, right? Like there are animal rights freaks like me. I'm happy to say trees are some of my best friends. I'm at the extreme, you know, one end. And there are total species, humans first, um, at, at the other end. And everybody falls somewhere in the middle. But we know if you want to include, increase ecological awareness and empathy, there are a couple ways to do it. There are actually only three that we know of. One, and they're all altered states. So you can do compassion or loving kindness based meditation, right? The Tibetan practice that uh, if you're, that Richie Davidson in the University of Wisconsin has studied extensively, and there's a lot of cool research on which expands empathy. You can train up flow because flow automatically expands both empathy and ecological awareness, or you you can use psychedelics, which doesn't tend to expand empathy. But uh, there's a bunch of recent research out of Imperial College London that backs up older research that shows that massive increases in uh, nature relatedness. And by the way, just so you know, when nature relatedness goes up, no surprise, environmental activism does in lockstep. They're very tied together, right? So sense, um, yeah. uh, the world I'm looking to create, 
right, in a sense, is the world that I'm sort of helping to create by running the Flow Research Collective because Flow does this automatically. And I will tell you, not so much on the nature-relatedness front, uh, but on the empathy front, um, I won't mention, I'm not allowed to mention names specifically, but uh, following what uh, George Floyd, following COVID, all the social justice stuff, um, police forces across America have known, oh my God, we got to get much more empathetic. Uh, mm-hmm. It's hard to cops to get cops to be like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go practice loving kindness meditation though. Sometimes you can do it and it depends on where you are. Um, yeah. But flow is peak performance. So we've trained a number of big three letter agencies, law enforcement agencies, what so what over the past year, because they want peak performance. They want more flow, but they really want more empathy. Um, yeah. and, uh, I, and, you know, the other thing is also, um, we're training a bunch of companies for those same reasons. Like the employees want more, uh, flow, more peak performance, but the HR departments and the people at the top are like, we need more empathy. We need more diversity. We need more voices. We, you know, all that stuff. Um, and you know, I've been lucky in that, like we have, you know, we have a technology that works for that basically. (laughs) We got a hack for that. I just love like what I really love about your work. And again, we were talking about this earlier, but you know, when someone dives into the, the the body of your work you can see the intersects and for for me it's it's and i imagine for others it's cool to see the entry points because you know you might come into your work uh with one of these novels you might come in on the environmental side or animal rights side or whatever it is but you're exposed to the other pillars of your work that all intersect right or you might come in like i did I'll first with flow state and it's, here's, so, so here's, cool let me here's some weird stuff that and I, don't ask me why this happens because it's but it's funny so there's a guy uh Ernie Ward, who's uh, one of the most more famous, though slightly controversial these days, uh, veterinarians in the world. Brilliant, genius. Okay. Um, animal rights activist, actually tried to spawn the first uh, pet food company built out of cultured beef, so steak made from stem cells for your dogs. Um, okay. Very cutting edge, very neat. You would think this is a guy who came into me through like a small furry prayer, my book about the relationship between humans and animals, or. Um, and it, like he walked into my very first novel, which isn't even like cyberpunk. It's it's a it's a novel, right? Yeah. Um, and like so, people come in. You, they're one kind of person, and I meet them. And I'm like, oh, you clearly came in. Like this is like this is the doorway, right? You walked in this way, and no, 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 you walked in some like crazy weird doorway. <laughs> or like I'll be this happened. Oh, I think I was in. I wasn't in Rome. I was somewhere in Europe, not before COVID. And I was like talking to very heavy biz- Italian businessmen and government officials. And um, I, you know, all those people always come in through abundance and bold and, and right. Like, so it, and sure. I, I don't even think they even, you know, add, um, suddenly there, you know, you're at dinner talking to like the minister of the interior or something like that. And, you know, this is somebody who really like they study plants, animals and ecosystems and forestry and things like that. And the guy will turn to me and be like, do you know, your work on flow is very vain. And you're like, what? Huh? Huh? Weird. Or I'll tell you that I'll tell you the weirdest thing that happened to me is I was down in Brazil giving a talk 
and I was backstage and the very, uh, I'm going to get it wrong, uh, a very, very heavyweight official in their government, like ran up to me, started hugging me and wanted to take selfies with me. And he was like, you have changed everything in my life. For me, we run government totally different because of you. And like, I'm doing a Russian accent because that's where I fall back on when I have to do an accent. (laughs) At all, let's be clear. And it's not even Russian because I'm tone deaf. So like, whatever that was, it was wrong. But uh, (laughs) uh, yeah, so like, it's sort of this like weird Rorschach test People who know sort of like we joke about my friends, my wife, you know, where they're like, you never like whatever you think about somebody, like how they buy, if they happen to know who I am, which book they came into or how they got to me. Now, obviously, you know, the vast majority of everybody doesn't have a clue who I am, but on the obvious way you found me is super curious because it's never what you think it's going to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, this, this leads well into my last question for you. And that's just... Like, what makes you smile each day? What makes me smile each day? Yeah. So I'm going to leave you with um, wisdom from Stuart Brandt, who was the creator of the Whole Earth Catalog, and something that he said once, and I, on a day-to-day basis, I really really do believe this. Um, The only sustainable happiness is the satisfaction of a job well done. So like that's like my days are, um, I don't like, there's a lot of stuff that makes me smile along the way. Like I, I love all of it, but like, it's very fleeting. And the, like, what I oh. like is sort of looking back at the end of my day going, Oh, wow, look at all that. And knowing the progress, stack, a bunch of those days and then, and then for months at a time, now you're getting somewhere, right? Like yeah. that's, that's always what makes me smile a lot. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like a lot of people. I'm addicted to the progress. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've, I've been reading one of actually one of Peter and Tony's books, Life Force, and Tony says often in there that it, happiness equals progress. And if you really think about it, in any areas of life, if you feel like you're making progress and you look back, usually that puts a smile on your face and you feel accomplished in some capacity. I mean, it's funny because like broad picture, positive psychology say there's three tiers of happiness. There's happiness, what we've been talking about. Then there's enjoyment, which is basically a high flow lifestyle, right? And then there's purpose, which is a high flow lifestyle where the thing that is bringing you the flow is coupled to a cause greater than yourself. But happiness, there isn't a whole lot you can do to like you're, you, you are who you are. You're, you are born with emotional set points, high experience, low experience, and you live your life emotionally, mostly in between. And that like really sure. doesn't change a lot and et cetera, et cetera. And like Dan Harris isn't wrong. Like you can get 10% happier if you do all the work, maybe, right? Yeah. You're wired, right? And everything else. You can get a hell of a lot more enjoyment, a hell of a lot more purpose, and you can always get the satisfaction of a job well done. Those yeah. are all really doable and sustainable and less sort of genetically arbitrary in a sense. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Lo- I mean, we could talk forever, but I, I, I want to respect your time. I, you know, for listeners, probably probably feeling this, but I would encourage you to jump in at any point in the, uh, well, let's call it the Stephen Kotler journey of writing because there's something for everyone and you'll, you'll jump around. The latest book, though, I have to say, 
we touched on it. Uh, I would have loved to go a little further, but I, I want to respect the time. But imagine for me, the, it was the imagination piece. Like every time I pick up and, and put the book down, I just, I feel like my mind's in a different state. And you've written the book that it's, it's so close to near future that it's, it doesn't feel like, oh, this is impossible stuff. So I leave feeling, you know, uh, ironically closer to one of your other book titles like that, you know, it's, it, it's, it's possible, right? It's, it's actually possible. Like the art of the impossible it's, or the art of possibility it's there. Right. So anyway, I'd encourage people to dive in and, and have fun, be open and enjoy the process along the way. So thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you.